This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly. Don't forget, you can listen to my Times Radio show Monday to Friday, 10 till 1. It's basically like the podcast, but longer and more musical bits. But you can uh, listen live on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app so you can take us with you wherever you are. But thank you for downloading this episode of the podcast. Coming up today, happy birthday, Sir Humphrey. The independent, impartial civil servant is 170 years old. Thanks for the report that Gladstone uh, commissioned. Lots of talk about Partiality, what with Matt Hancock's WhatsApps, uh, Suella Bravman's emails, and of course Sue Gray. So we will speak to Lord Butler, Robin Butler, who was Cabinet Secretary for Thatcher, Major and Blair, and Jonathan Lynn, the co-creator of Yes Minister, to talk about uh, the survival of Sir Humphrey. That's coming up in just a sec. But first, as ever, we kick off with this. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, as we always do at this time, we have a wade through the news and pulling on their welly boots this morning. Uh, not uh, Knight of the Marriott because uh, Indian Knight and James Marriott are both away. We don't know if they're together. I'm not one to gossip. Uh, but I'm delighted. Uh, that it's a proper male slash independent on Sunday reunion, this, because we've all worked together. Uh, Tom McTague, now political editor, unheard. Good morning. Hello. And Jane Merrick, policy editor of the EDI. Good morning. Hello. Well, this is nice, isn't it? All the whole gang. All, I don't think the three of us ever all worked together, though, at the same time. Didn't we? No, follow I think on you did my other? maternity leave, yes. Matt, and then I think Tom had my job after me. So yeah. I'm really pleased that I gave you both gave you opportunities. <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> and it was uh, the, the independent on Su- the independent on Sunday shut down when Tom was in charge. So that's yeah. you know, <laughs> sorry about that. It thrived when Jane and I were there. <laughs> had millions of listeners and readers. Um, uh, yeah, lovely stuff. Uh, right. <laughs> Let's dive into... Now, I want to talk about immigration, but less this issue of the small boats, because I feel like we've talked about that a lot this week. But uh, the sort of flip side to all of this is that, you know, the ministers keep talking about 45,000 uh, people coming on small boats. But the the people coming here legally, net migration, uh, is is really high uh, compared to uh, where the government always said it wanted to get down to what was 100, uh, net migration of 100,000. Um and stories around in the papers today, they're in the papers at the weekend, that the government is planning to increase the number of people who can come here, opening the doors to foreign workers, uh, to tackle chronic shortages in the labour market, in particular starting with the construction sector, where 
there are loads of uh, vacancies. And if we want more houses, in part to deal with the number of people who are here, that we need people to build them. But that means more people have got to come here. Um, Tom, there are two sides of this, this, this conversation. Uh, and the government has currently decided to, to do the we're very tough on people to come in here side, uh, while quietly uh, letting more people come here. I think that's, that's that's exactly it, isn't it? It's the it's the it's the clever politics on uh, you know front of house and then quietly behind the scenes they can just tweak the new immigration rules. So you'll see this not just in the construction sector, but let's say vets. You know we need vets, and there'll be lobbying going on behind the scenes, and they'll loosen the re restrictions on that, and then on you know border guards, and 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 they can do it on on all sectors of the economy. And as you see, it's almost like everything has to change so that everything can stay the same. Nothing really is going to change as a result of Brexit. We're still going to have high immigration because that's the economy that we've created. And it seems like it's too hard to move to something else. Um, and Jane, it's, it's the inability to make the case for legal migration. It's the, it's, I suppose it's the language around anyone coming here economic migrants are bad and we must stop them, um, while also saying that actually we could do with them because there's nobody to build the houses. Yeah, and there is no answer to the problems in the UK economy that doesn't involve immigration. I mean, the penny is is dropping for inside government and for Brexiteers apparently, but it's what loads of people know already. I think, I think as Tom hinted at there as well, I think a lot of Brexiteers realise that Brexit isn't really working the way that they envisaged, so that sort of things are changing and they're pretending that it's not really about Brexit or anything else, but they have to do this because clearly we don't have enough people to build houses. We don't have enough people um, to do all these jobs that that people from Europe did do. I think it's interesting actually that this story um, and what the plans don't include is the hospitality sector, mm. the retail sector. They're hugely understaffed. I mean, there's a total of 1.2 million job vacancies anyway in the economy, but a lot of those are in hospitality and retail. And I think um, the, the Migration Advisory Committee probably at some point will have to recommend adding those to the shortage occupation list as well, because it is just it's it's obvious. I mean, you you know, massive shortage. You, you go to a, a pub or restaurant and they're advertising for staff all the time because yeah. of the because of Brexit. And it, it actually what's but what's fascinating about the uh, immigration figures, long term net migration the year to June last year is the latest figures. More than 500,000 more people arrived than left. But almost all of them are non-EU. The, the EU, yeah. uh, in fact, the, the number of EU nationals in the UK net actually went down uh, in that time. So we took back control. It's all about Brexit. Take control of our borders. But actually, all the migration is being driven by people not from the EU who could always come here in the first place, Tom. <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose I think there's a potential positive here and that we could get to a, a system where, you know, we have to own the decisions that we're making. You know, we, we as Jane says, you know, you see that there are shortages in the hospitality sector. So the government has to respond and it's and it has to get it through the House of Commons or, you know, uh, and so it has a kind of democratic consent ongoing a sort of rolling consent and it can be a political issue that you can fight over at the election whether you you know have fewer uh, restrictions or more restrictions and 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 you get to a place where the co the country perhaps is more comfortable than uh, than it was before i don't know that that's that that is the argument that some of the the sort of uh, some of the brexiteers will make to you that if you once you've got control 
the country will feel more comfortable, even with uh, migration levels of the same. I hope that's the case. That would be <laughs> that would be nice. I'm not sure we're there yet. Um, is it actually just quite smart politics to some extent, Jane, that you you sound very tough on immigration um, publicly while also just quietly increasing it for economic growth? So you get the growth and you get the credit for being tough. Yeah, I mean, this is Rishi Sunak all over, isn't it? He's a pragmatist. Um, he knows there's a problem. He can do the numbers better than most people in government. Um, and I think you're right. I think I think he needs to create space on the right, actually. I mean, there are lots on the in the centre and the left that would say we need immigration all the time. On the right, he's created this space by being so tough on immigration this week that he can make this argument. I mean, what sort of what slightly depresses me is that the the case, the positive case for freedom of movement was never made during the referendum campaign, even by the Remainers. It was never made in a, a strong enough way. I mean, I think I remember David Miliband trying to um, talk about this, but he he'd sort of lost that argument because he left he'd left politics. There was never this case. And, and it's, you know, freedom of movement was brilliant for this country. There is this really strong case. You can still have control in a, in a sense that, you know, you crack down on illegal immigration, but you can make this positive case for, yes, our country, like many other countries, is built on immigration. It's made our, mm. you know, it's, it's contributed in a fantastic way to art, to architecture, to our thriving industries that are now in trouble. Where was where was that case made in 2016? It wasn't. And actually, the only real discussion about freedom of movement was David Cameron's emergency break. Remember that? That was... Yeah. yeah. Short-lived yeah. idea. Uh, right, let's move on. Um, uh, in fact, we're just hearing, that I think the government's going to discuss it. Uh, the, the illegal immigration bill is going to be discussed in Parliament on, uh, going to get its second reading on March the 13th. Um, so uh, we'll keep an eye on that. Let's um, turn our attention to this, this story on the front of the Times today. Uh, millions of people could be offered a new generation of weight loss drugs under plans to turn the tide on obesity and get benefit claimants back to work. After the approval of a game-changing weight loss jab yesterday, health officials believed that obesity drugs could ultimately be offered to up to 12 million people, which would get them back to work and therefore cut the benefits bill. Um, uh, this was, we heard this morning from uh, Dr Chris, Chris Van Tolleken, the, the medic, and he's on CBBS a lot as well. Is it CBBS or CBBC? Anyway, this was him speaking to Times Radio Breakfast. These are drugs that have been through what we call a stringent drug regulator, so they are safe, and they seem at least to do what they say on the tin. I mean, there is there is no drug in history that has ever, that I can think of, that's ever lived up to the promise of the first trials or to the headlines. But these, we should be celebrating drugs that treat people who live with obesity. That's great. Uh, Jane, I couldn't help thinking that this is one of those things where but I thought the weight loss drug story was just a good story. You know, so people are struggling with their weight. Mm. This is good. And then somehow it manages to get turned into a sort of culture war, war on benefit claimants, fat people get back to work, which everybody <laughs> then has to take a position on. So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting, actually, that the last topic we were talking about feeds into this one because it's about the economic workforce and, and you know, who's, who's working, who's not, who's active and who's not. And, um, I mean, I think... We don't have to have this arg argument about a culture war, but it's interesting that there is a case for, you know, how can you improve the lives of people, especially because obesity is a, is a real problem in this country. Um, I think putting the kind of benefits, you know, how can we put the benefits argument to one side? I think it's an argument that Steve Barkley might want to make to Jeremy Hunt. But on a, on the, on a broader sense, yes, it's, it would be great to have um, help for people who need to lose weight. I think it's we have to be so careful though that nothing like this is a magic bullet mm. you're not going mm. to sort of solve this crisis overnight 
or even in two years. I think I think there is a limit as well to how how much NICE will fund this for, um, which is two years. And there is evidence that people will put on weight. I think there is a sort of a broader argument, but the government hates talking about the nanny state. But there is a broader argument to just basically, you know, nudging people towards um, moving more, doing more exercise. You could, you could, you know, you could make public transport cheaper so people don't rely on their cars as much, less sedentary transport. You could improve the cycle lanes in this country. It's not to say that everyone has to have a bike, but you could just kind of improve the infrastructure that makes us live more healthy and move more. And that's, you know, you don't have yeah. to phrase that as nanny state. It's just a way to, you know, to make us a bit slightly fitter and just moving a bit more and that will probably help a lot of people i suppose it's where we are in the in the um political debate now tom it, 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 it's felt that tories can't because they're so anti-nanny state they can't possibly just say let's help people lose weight because it might be good for them it has to be bound up in some sort of economic argument yeah and it, it's almost it's just not a political argument is it this is this is uh, a drug that's become available, of course, it's going to be used if it's if it benefits people and it will save the NHS and all of us money. So it seems a, a sort of an obvious good thing. The the one thing I, I agree completely with Jane that the one thing that worries me slightly is there is obviously a cultural problem. You know, we're not the it's not just a question of uh, wealth, you know, that as you get wealthier as a country that you get fatter It's a you know, us and, and the Americans are the fattest you know we, we have got a, a particular fat problem and um, and so it's a kind of cultural thing it's it's something that we are doing uh, whether it's food or whether it's lifestyle lack of exercise um, you know the, the public transport so, something is going wrong that means that we we are going to need these drugs more than others so you think somebody has to address the sort of wider um, cultural or atmospheric problem as well yeah, and uh, well, we'd be interested to see how that pans out. I suspect that some of this is just a little bit of Steve Barkley trying to wangle some more money from the budget next week, um, which is on Wednesday. <laughs> yes. so had, no, it'll be good for the economy. It'll be good for the economy, honestly. Uh, yes. right, very good. Um, let's turn our attention to education now, then. A report published today by the social mobility charity, the Sutton Trust, has looked at how many school children have had private tuition. Well, Carl Cullinane is uh, the director of research there and joins us now. Carl, talk us through, the, talk us through what you found. So we've been looking at rates of private tuition for the last 18 years, um, and this, this year's figures show the, the highest rates of, of private tutoring yet among um, secondary school age people. So 30% of, of young people have had tutoring at some point um, in, in their school life, whether it was for uh, doing entrance exams to get into grammar schools or to help them with a particular GCSE subject or just to help them with their work in general and in some cases to help them catch up after the pandemic disruption. So the level of private tutoring is, is higher than it ever has, has been before, and, it's, and it has leapt up uh, another three percentage points since before the pandemic. And presumably your take would be that this is a, this widens the gap between the haves and the have-nots, because there's only people who've got the money you can pay for it, that um, then are able to give their children a, a leg up. Yes, exactly. The, the the data shows huge disparities in who has access to tutoring. So it's the most, the wealthiest homes, um, those in the the wealthiest part of the parts of the country as well. So rates of tutoring in London are substantially higher, uh, over over twice as much as many other parts of England. And that's an issue, you know, in terms of uh, a level playing field in, in education. That that it's understandable that parents obviously want to, to help their help their children and um, with with their education. But the net effect of that. Is, is that those with the resources are able to buy their way um, uh, to progression, whether that's into the 
the best schools or, or the top universities and, and getting top grades. And that's, that's a problem for social mobility and equality. Uh, Jane, should we be worried about this? I mean, what could be done about it? Because we can't ban private tuition, can we? No, you, you, you can never stop, um, you know, wealthier parents paying extra to help their children, even if they go to state school. But I think it's really important, actually, that this research sheds a light on this because it needs there needs to be a debate. We need to carry on having this debate. I mean, actually, I think education isn't discussed enough in politics at the moment. It's just not doesn't seem to be a priority for this government. So, yes, it would it means, you know, the, the it's exposing that there's this level playing field. Really important. What can you do about it? It's about improving state ed, the state education for all pupils in schools. So Carl talks about catch up um, work that's needed after the pandemic. Really important. That should be going on in schools. The government should be funding, putting extra money into schools to help children with less resources catch up from um, since the pandemic. And, you know, it's just, it's a, about providing sort of extra clubs after school. I mean, I think there's a, there's a sort of a, I do worry a bit that we're overscheduling children. I had to tell my 12 year old daughter to, she's so overscheduled. I said this evening, you're going to look at the telly all evening just because you're being too, you know, doing too many things, too many clubs. Um, but it's really important. I think, you know, schools can offer and they need the funding and the staffing and they can't just do this with the existing resources, but giving, allowing children for free to go to clubs after school for this kind of thing that, that middle-class children, wealthier children are getting anyway through tuition. Uh, if you come across, I know your children are a bit younger, Tom, but if you come across this, um, this sort of, I must admit, I, th I always thought it was, a, it was a very elitist thing that people go to private. It sounded awful, the idea of going to extra school. Um, <laughs> but I'm more, I'm more aware of it going on uh, now, maybe because I've got a teenage daughter. But What do you think, Tom? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm becoming aware of it. You, you hear about it, um, getting tuition to get into some of the private schools for secondary school or to pass the the grammar school test uh, to get out into, uh, into Kent or somewhere like that where there where there seem to be grammar schools. So yes, yeah, so you, so I'm already hearing it, and my uh, my eldest is six. Uh, but on the flip side, you also see it. Well, I notice it very much when I go to sort of poorer areas around me where I live in, in South East London. So you've got sort of Catford or Lewisham, you see a lot of private tuition sort of signs uh, on the high street and they seem to be aimed at uh, ethnic minority kids who are, you know, in, uh, parents who are incredibly uh, ambitious and successful um, uh, in in school. And these kids are, these kids are flying. So I wonder whether the, the, the London effect uh, that your guest was talking about is also reflecting that, that this is a, that you've got a lot of ethnic minority kids who are who are really being pushed by their parents. Many thanks to our columnist panel today, Tom McTague from Unheard and Jane Merrick from The Eye. If you're not yet a Time subscriber, which I find very hard to believe, you're in luck. We've got a special offer. You can get four months for just a pound, but only if you sign up before Friday at four o'clock. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash times red box and subscribe right now. Right, up next, it's happy birthday to Humphrey. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Happy birthday, Sir Humphrey. Yet today we are marking the birth of the punctilious pen pusher. So a landmark report which created the civil service as we know it today. It's 170 years ago. That the Liberal Prime Minister, William Gladstone, ordered two men, Stafford Northcote, who would one day be a Conservative Chancellor, and a Permanent Secretary Senior Official, Charles Trevelyan, to write a report which would form the basis of the way government has been run ever since. That founding document of the British Civil Service was based on the core values of integrity, propriety, objectivity and appointment on merit, able to transfer its loyalty and expertise from one elected government to the next. It's something we've heard a lot about lately, thanks to Matt Hancock's WhatsApps piling pressure on the Cabinet Secretary Simon Case. Tory party emails sent out under the name of Suella Braverman, attacking civil servants and the so-called blob. And of course, Labour trying to hire Sue Gray. The impartiality and perceived impartiality of the civil service is constitutionally vital. The impartiality of the civil service, the trust and impartiality are vital. The biggest threat to the impartiality of the civil service is the party opposite. Complete political impartiality is absolutely key. Ministers and secretaries of state would be nowhere were it not for the constant hard work of the impartial civil service. What this side of the house wants to do is to ensure that we protect the impartiality of the civil service. That was MPs speaking in the Commons this week on the appointment of Sue Gray. So what we do is take a look at impartiality in the civil service. A bit later, we'll hear from Jonathan Lynn, the co-creator of Yes Minister, whose Sir Humphrey Appleby came to define our perceptions of the Whitehall Mandarin, running rings around the hapless minister Jim Hacker, while his private secretary Bernard looks on. But first, let's bring in the man who served as cabinet secretary running the civil service, for Conservative governments under Margaret Thatcher and John Major, and then under Tony Blair's first new Labour government. Robin Butler, Lord Butler, good morning. Good morning, nice to meet you. Good to have you uh, with us. Explain for people who haven't, and I'll be forgiven for not having heard of the North Coach Rebellion report, how significant well, was it? Was it was set up um, at the end of the Crimean War because uh, the uh, up to that point, the people who helped ministers had really, was they were appointed by nepotism, I mean, mainly appointed by connection. And uh, so, so the Northcote, Northcote and Trevelyan were commissioned to produce this report. It took about another 20-odd years before it was actually implemented, <laughs> but that was the foundation of a civil service filled by open competition on merit. And I think it served the country very well. 
Yeah, I was looking back at this. Even Charles Dickens mocked the civil service as the circumlocution office in Little Dorrit. It was a sort of, it was a well-known thing. It was, it was a widely regarded thing that the, the state wasn't particularly up to the job. Well, yes, I mean, people always tease bureaucrats <laughs> and uh, quite right. Um, keeps us up to the mark. And then how did it work for you then uh, when you were Cabinet Secretary for Margaret Thatcher and John Major, developing and rolling out their Conservative policies, and then you worked for Tony Blair in dismantling them? How do you adjust to that uh, as the Cabinet Secretary? Well, I, I'm, I think the ethos of the civil service, the professional ethos, is impartiality and um, your job is to work for whichever government the electors produce. I, I compare it with a barrister. A barrister works for their clients, whatever they think of them, uh, they do their best for them. And the civil service does that for the politicians whom the electorate return. Was it easier for you going from uh, John May from Margaret Thatcher to John Major, or from John Major to to Tony Blair. So I suppose if you've got a new prime minister of the same party, they still want to do things differently. Yes, um, they do. And uh, John Major was very different from Margaret Thatcher. Uh, he was the first prime minister that I was, whom I served, that I was older than. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, but the transition in, in no case was very difficult. Of course, one of the things that the civil service do to prepare were for an when there's a change of government following a general election, they have confidential discussions with the opposition in the time leading up to the election. Now, I had those with Tony Blair. So when he came in following the 1997 election, we'd done a lot of the preparatory work. Mm. And, and what about how uh, the, the North Kutcher Valley report, it, it wasn't just used, it was obviously from the base of the civil service in this country, but it, it, it did in other parts of the world as well. Yes. Well, because, you know, Britain was then an imperialist power and we exported the way that we did things to uh, a lot of our uh, colonies and uh, later the empire. Yeah, although uh, one place, notably, uh, which didn't go down that route was America. Well, I want to stay there because I want to come back to you, but I've been speaking to Sarah Baxter. She's now the director of the Marie Colvin Centre in New York, but she's worked as both a political editor in the UK and as a Sunday Times Washington correspondent. And I asked her how the US system of government differs to ours and what she, uh, which she thinks works better. In America, it's like the tide coming in and out. So you get very different people at the top of all the so-called civil service when the president changes. So that's why, for example, one speaks of, say, the Biden administration or the Trump administration, because the actual administration changes and becomes a reflection of the person in power. So all the top officials of departments are actually appointed by the president. They have to be approved by Congress, and that's not always easy. You know, you think of Senate hearings to confirm nominees to oversee departments. So there's quite an elaborate process to go through. And how far down the sort of food chain or the hierarchy does that, that go before you get to people who would have worked in the Trump administration as well as the Biden one? Well, not far enough if you're Donald Trump. So, for example, he's now been flirting with some very uh, radical ideas for uh, inverted commas draining the swamp. 
which involves sacking large numbers of civil servants, to, to use the British term, because he considers them to be too much creatures of the establishment, because they don't change with each administration. Uh, so it, it's not just the top personnel, it's, it's sort of quite a number of sort of heads of department and so forth. I mean, certainly, if you're coming in, you want, you know, you want your own head of the Justice Department, you want your ho- own head of the uh, Defence Department, you want your own head of the CIA. And having seen both sides covered politics in uh, Westminster and in Washington, which do you think works? Because I suppose there's an argument that actually some continuity is quite good and you can hit the ground running, but on the other hand, some political accountability on what are, at the top of organisations, quite politically contentious issues. Which do you think is the most effective? Well, I actually like the idea that you do appoint heads who reflect your views. I'm I'm sure that civil servants would disagree. But, you know, these days we're so partisan, it becomes a sort of ridiculous balancing act for civil servants to be able to sort of advise everybody equally. And I'm thinking particularly at the sort of cabinet secretary, permanent secretary level. I, I know some permanent secretaries who would absolutely insist it's not a problem for them. But I think it's quite weird. You know, if, if somebody is supposed to be, you know, his master's voice representing the administration, they would be a, a partisan figure. I don't think it's a bad idea. And I think it's becoming increasingly implausible that you can be all things to all men and women in the way that the civil servant services. What I do think is very, very bad and very dangerous is the idea that every administration should sack 10,000 people and, you know, keep changing all the personnel, which strikes me as very, very authoritarian, very, uh, very dangerous, frankly. Uh, that was uh, Sarah Baxter, former Washington correspondent of the Sunday Times, speaking to me a bit early from New York. Um, Robin Butler, what do you make of that? The, 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 it's now increasingly difficult for the civil service to be all things to all all uh, men and women. Is it is it is that plausible in this day and age? Do you think? Well, I think both the American system and the British system are pretty crazy, actually. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> the American system, as Sarah Baxter was saying, it takes a long time to put the administration in place. By the time they've filled all the levels, it can be 18 months into the president's term, and the president's term is only four years. Uh, and, of course, they take time after election day until uh, inauguration, uh, during which time there is, as it were, a dead government in, in place. Um, in Britain, it's crazy because the, the government changes overnight, right after election day. The Prime Minister coming in has been out on the stump for three weeks or more, is absolutely exhausted, and then immediately has to take some of the most immediate decision, important decisions that uh, he or she will have to take. So both sides are, are, are pretty crazy. Now, on the point that Sarah Baxter said, and you asked about um, being difficult to make all things for all men, there's no doubt that um, since my day, Government has become more political Um, and uh, with 24-7 media and uh, social media, uh, that commands a lot of the attention of the uh, politicians. And uh, but for that, they've got their special advisors. Uh, So the special advisors bring the political slant into it. The civil servants are there to make the system work. And. you can argue what the balance between those two is, but that's not a bad system. I wonder what you've made then of the the sort of slight muddying the waters of this row over Sue Gray as a senior and respected impartial civil servant 
uh, to go and become Labour's chief of staff. But is that the sort of thing which undermines trust in the civil service? Well, I think that it gave an opportunity for people to criticise the impartiality of the civil service, and some of them have certainly taken that uh, opportunity. And I think Sue Gray will have regretted giving that opportunity. But I don't think it does undermine the impartiality of the civil service, or indeed, actually, the impartiality of Sue Gray. Um, it is our job, civil servants, to make the system work. And I imagine that that's what she's going to go and do for Keir Starmer. And what about the, this... this uh... This, we seem to have gone from a, an era of describing the civil service as a Vols voice uh, uh, operation to the blob. Um, there's this latest row about this email concerning uh, HQ sent out to supporters, supposedly from Sorella Braffman, although she said she didn't see it, attacking an activist blob of left-wing lawyers, civil servants and the Labour Party. Um, it, it's clear that, the, that now it seems fashionable, maybe even politically expedient, for the government to treat the civil service as, a, as an enemy uh, to what they're doing rather than an ally. Yeah, well, I think um, the relationship has become very much more us and them, the politi politicians and the civil servants. And I greatly regret that. And I think it's uh, damaging to our system of government. Um, again, looking back to my time, uh, the civil servants particularly in number 10, worked extremely harmoniously with the uh, political advisors. We each knew our place and we had good relations with our principals, in case of number 10, with the prime minister. We were a sort of family and uh, government works better, I think, in those circumstances. And of course, the other, the other big uh, civil service interaction row that's uh, around Matt Hancock's WhatsApps, uh, which, amongst other things, show that the cabinet secretary, Simon, Simon Case, has written... Some rather rude things about his masters. Uh, Colin Boris Johnson distrusted, wishy Sunak bonkers. I mean, beyond, presumably you're quite glad you didn't have WhatsApp in your day. Um, uh, so you're probably quite glad of that. I wonder if you think Simon Case's days are now numbered. Well, I very much, I very much hope they're not. Um, I've got to know Simon Case since he became Cabinet Secretary and I've developed a very high personal regard for him. I think he's had very rough waters to sail through and they're still pretty rough. But uh, I hope that he, I hope that he survives them. Oh, and it just occurred to me when, uh, when you were cabinet secretary, uh, it was exactly when yes minister and yes prime minister were on the TV. Was it really watched by ministers and civil servants as a sort of manual to what was going on? Well, it was certainly watched by Margaret Thatcher. It was uh, her favourite program. And when the program graduated from yes minister to yes prime minister, Margaret Thatcher asked me to help Nigel Hawthorne and. Uh, 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 sorry, Paul Eddington, Nigel Hawthorne and uh, Jonathan Lynn and Tony Jay. And so I showed them round number 10 so that they could get the feel of the place. Uh, and so it was, uh, to some extent, we collaborated uh, with the production of the programme. Well, as Robert Butler was saying, uh, many of the stereotypes of civil servants we now get come from Yes Minister, the early 80s sitcom co-created and written by Tony Jay and Jonathan Lynn. So I caught up with Jonathan. I asked him how their idea of setting a comedy in the not very hilarious world of Whitehall came about. Tony and I had been writing management training films on and off for years. We've written about 20 of them for his company called Video Arts. And then one day he said, uh, what would you feel about a comedy series about the civil service? And I said, I thought that was really rather boring. And no, thank you. So three years went by when I was 
artistic director of the Cambridge Theatre Company. And I thought, I want to get writing again. And I didn't have anything to write. So I, I found Tony and I said, um, did you ever do anything with that idea? And he said, no, do you want to do it now? And I said, well, let's research it. So we started. Uh, he had some contacts in government, Marsha Williams, as she was known then. And that's obviously Howard Wilson's Howard Wilson's political woman. secretary. Yeah. And by chance, I happen to know Bernard Donoghue, who was the head of the policy unit in Number 10 under Wilson and Callan. And he and Marsha, by the way, did not get along at all. And we were very careful not to mention to either. So that's, that's how it came about. We started researching. And after a while, we realized we could cut down this enormous subject because a, a minister, a, cab, a cabinet minister, head of a department, a secretary of state, is the head of hundreds of people in Whitehall and thousands upon thousands all over the country. How do you put that into a television show? And we realized that the three components were the minister. My diary, you didn't know I was coming. You didn't even know who'd win the election. The permanent secretary who runs the civil service end of his department. Yes, you see, Her Majesty does like the business of government to continue even when there are no politicians around. <laughs> Difficult, surely? Yes, <laughs> and no. And the private secretary who has, is a servant of two masters. Uh, we knew there would be a minister, Minister, even though we didn't know it would be you. So that's that's how it came about. And then we started researching it. And so what was the appeal of the civil service aspect rather than a sort of political show that was about sort of party politics and that side of what goes on in Westminster? Well, there, there was always lots of stuff about party politics. And that's so ephemeral. And we wanted to look at the system. We wanted to see how Britain is governed. And the more we researched, the funnier it became to us. And who does run this department? I do. <laughs> <laughs> I see. And what am I supposed to do? We've been through all this before. Make policy, get legislation enacted, and above all, secure the department's budget in Cabinet. I sometimes think that the budget is all you ever really care about. Well, it is rather important, Minister. <laughs> if nobody cared about the budget, we might end up with a department so small that even a minister could run it. Mrs Thatcher hadn't yet won the election. Jim Callaghan was prime minister. The, the winter of discontent was uh, looming up. We didn't want to, to be on one side or the other, and certainly the BBC wouldn't have wanted us to at that time. So we decided that we had to have a, a prime minister who was never referred to as he or she, but only as prime minister, so that it, we couldn't know whether it was Thatcher or somebody else. And that way, we were able to look at all kinds of subjects without actually being taking a partisan view of one side or another. As you were doing your research, you I'm sure came across real life examples of the way the civil service operates. Which yeah. of those then found its way into the show? Oh, most of them. I mean, the, the, the tragedy of Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister is that it's all more or less true, or certainly was at that time. And I think to some extent still is. We just heightened it slightly for comic, comic effect. We, I mean, we did invent some scenarios, like we invented a hospital in, for a National Health Service episode in which uh, the hospital had no doctors, no nurses, no patients, but 500 administrators. 
brand new hospital with over 500 non-medical staff and no patients. Oh, there is uh, one patient. Uh, one? Yes, the deputy chief administrator fell over a piece of scaffolding and broke his head. We invented that. Then we discovered there were six such hospitals in the UK. The overall impression from Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister when uh, Jim Hacker finally makes the number 10 is that he's the sort of hapless one with the civil service basically running rings around him and, you know, stopping him doing anything he actually wants to do. To the point that, you know, there's always been lots of stories about ministers are told, new incoming ministers, you know, watch Yes Minister. That's the best manual for preparing for ministerial government. Is that how you, is that the impression that you formed? Were you more affectionate almost towards the civil service as being actually the, the grown-ups in the room who are, who are keeping the shoulder open? We were both completely ambivalent about that. We didn't see Jim as completely hapless or Sir Humphrey as completely in charge. Overall, if you were to analyse the whole series, Humphrey only probably only wins a very small number of their their um, confrontations more than Jim, or gets his way more than Jim. Usually, there's a compromise, and that's I think the way it is in the real world. One of the things that I mean, Sir Humphrey has entered the lexicon, but the sort of Sir Humphreyisms, the the interventions of the from the civil service, the sort of jargon of the gobbledygook to bamboozle the minister is a it's just part of, of Whitehall these days. Well, if we do nothing, we implicitly agree with the speech. Two, if we issue a statement, we'll just look foolish. Three, if we lodge a protest, it'll be ignored. Four, we can't cut off aid because we don't give them any. <laughs> Five, if we break off diplomatic relations, we can't negotiate the oil rig contracts. And six, if we declare war, it might just look as though we were overreacting. I don't know if this is like asking me for your, your favourite child, but do you have a favourite one of those, the interactions between Sir Humphrey and Jim? No, I don't. I'm fond of almost all of them. But, but about Humphrey bamboozling Jim, yes, of course, part of that was because he didn't want Jim to interfere. Because Humphrey's view and the civil service's view at that time, and probably still is, you know, I mean, there's this notion that the civil service is impartial. And it, it's not impartial. It's partial to its own policies. It's impartial as between the government and the opposition, generally. Bernard, I have served 11 governments in the past 30 years. If I had lead in all their policies, I would have been passionately committed to keeping out of the common market and passionately committed to going into it. I would have been utterly convinced of the rightness of nationalizing steel and of denationalizing it and renationalizing it. In capital punishment, I'd have been a fervent retentionist and an ardent abolitionist. I would have been a Keynesian and a Freedmanite, a grammar school preserver and destroyer, a nationalization freak and a privatization maniac, but above all, I would have been a stark, staring, raving schizophrenic. <laughs> One of the things that's changed a lot is all the special advisors or spads, because they have no experience and they don't really know anything. And they've come straight from university and they've gone into central office or transport house or somewhere. And then in no time they're promoted to being a special advisor to someone. But they don't know enough. Yeah. They may be very smart people. They just don't know enough about how the world works and how this, the system works. And they always think they're going to change the system and then they never last long enough to do anything about it, which is why Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister is so timeless because the the interplay between civil servant and politician 
is still exactly the same. I wonder if it, I mean, I don't know if it's still exactly the same because I'm, I, you know, I haven't been in touch with that world for years, but it, it seems mostly pretty similar. And actually, I mean, there's a new cabinet job called Secretary of State for Leveling Up, which sounds a bit not unlike Jim's job of administrative affairs. I mean, it's a it's a job in which he can sort of interfere with every everything, and yet he has no control over anything. <laughs> um, so Michael Gove is the is the heir to Jim Hacker. Is that what you're saying? I think his job is. Um, <laughs> I, I I mean, it's not quite the same because Jim. Yes, Jim was in charge of levelling up anyway. It's not quite fair to Michael Go. I think he's, I think he's a bit brighter than Jim. <laughs> uh, Jonathan, it's really good to speak to you. Jonathan Lynn, thanks so much for joining us on Times Radio. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. It's nice to talk to you, Matt. What a legend. Jonathan Lynn uh, talked to you about creating Yes Minister. And uh, you can watch it, you can stream it on BritBox and Prime and uh, much else uh, besides. That's all we've got time for on today's episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. And you can listen via the Times Radio app. Catch me Monday to Friday, 10 to 1, live on Times Radio. And if you want to come on and play the hugely popular quiz, Can You Get to Number 10, email me your details, matt.chorley at times.radio, and we'll get you on very soon. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.